Not only has Russia engaged in an aggressive war against Ukraine this year, it's also been ramping up military actions abroad and militaristic education and propaganda domestically since the late 90s. In today's interview, I'm exploring militarization of youth and manipulation of history with Alison Edwards. Dr. Alison Edwards is a lecturer in global history at Bath Spa University, researching militarism in post-Soviet Russia. Her PhD project was fully funded by the Wales Doctoral Training Partnership, which is the Welsh branch of the Economic and Social Research Council. She's currently working on turning her thesis into a book, and her research interests include militarism, cultural militarism in Russia and Eurasia, the Cold War, as well as the commemoration and use of memory in politics and educational spaces. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please like and subscribe to help boost the popularity of our videos in YouTube. Well, before we get deeper into the topic, Alison, I'd love to know what really drew you into this area of expertise and really what you got you into the subject of not only Russia, but also militarism. Yeah, that's kind of like the age old question. How have you managed to get to where you are right now? And uh, it wasn't a straightforward road. Um, my interest in Russia kind of grew, and I don't know how many people have felt the same way as me, but when I was younger, there was this film that was horribly adapted, um, you know, complete romanticism of the actual events, Anastasia, this 1990s uh, cartoon that got me interested in Russia in general, even though, as, as many people will say now, uh, complete fiction, of course. And... Um, at the same time, my grandpa, he uh, would send um, clothes to people in Siberia, people who um, were affected by the economic chaos of the 1990s. And he would receive letters from them in Russian. And uh, to, because he wanted to understand the Russian, he would sit there every day, um, or he sits there every day, he still does it, uh, eating his breakfast, also going through this like Russian to English book um, that he's had. So that's kind of what interested me in the region, in the language, in the culture. Um, and specifically, like my thesis was actually on the 1990s. So I think as well, like I was kind of interested in that time period. As for the topic of militarism, uh, throughout my master's, I was really interested in like the Cold War, um, particularly questions around um, nuclear proliferation strangely enough. Um, but I was never really interested in the actual weapons themselves but how the issues of um, nuclear, potential nuclear warfare like circulated in everyday society. So this wasn't just in like the Soviet Union itself, but in America, in the US, um, in the UK, how they had things like the, um, uh, like nuclear drills in schools, for example, where people would have uh, kind of a rules of what they need to do should there be a nuclear attack. And those are the things that really interested me, you know, public opinion, and how people's lives were shaped by this possibility of, of a nuclear attack, mm. for example. And for me, that then kind of broadened out into the military in general. Um, and so for me, uh, there, there was actually an opportunity at Swansea University that came up to study in 1990s and militarism. And I was able to shape that project myself through writing the um, research proposal for it. And one of the things that was interesting to me was that that time period, the 1990s, has kind of been characterized as a period of complete demilitarization. Um, and I could see that on a, on a physical level, you know, because of the economic chaos of the 1990s, um, the fact they lost wars in Chechnya, for example, but 
Um, knowing that the Soviet Union was so militarized in its thinking, I couldn't quite work out how demilitarization could have happened in such a short period of time culturally in people's minds. Um, and so that's kind of where I ended up figure, you know, in that was kind of my opening, my avenue. Mm. Um, and one of the topics I focused on underneath my thesis was, first of all, the use of memory. So particularly the commemoration of the Victory Day in 1995, which was the kind of, this is when Yeltsin revived the Great Patriotic War Victory Day parades of the Soviet era in the 1990s, obviously with a new Russian flair um, as they tried to Russify the event. And um, which also segued then into how that time period, as I was sifting through the archives, how they tried to reach out specifically to the youth and to to raise awareness and need for a military patriotic education that would then kind of uh, glorify that event in society again. Um, and then I just that's how I that, that kind of opened the door for me to explore more of that that target towards the youth. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because we associate this militarism and those huge parades um, on Victory Day with with Putin. But really, they began in the 90s. But they didn't have all the paraphernalia they have now. They didn't sort of, for instance, all print out photos of their ancestors and, and have all the stuff, all the the, the 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 stuff that goes on now. They were still quite muted in the 90s, weren't they? In some ways, yes. I mean, so they didn't have the immortal regiment. That's what you're talking about there with the, the fate where people kind of marched down towards Red Square with the faces of heroes from the Great Patriotic War. They didn't have that because that came about in 2011. Um, but what they did have is they used um, they used Soviet paraphernalia. They had the Soviet symbols. Uh, when you see them stand on Red Square now, they still had the, the I, I don't really know what to call them. They're kind of like banners where they would have like the Belarusian front, for example, and you'd have veterans from those particular battalions or I don't really know what the proper word would be for them. This is where my strategic <laughs> aspect of military standards kind of or something in English, wouldn't it? It would be like the military standards or whatever yeah. you call them. Um, so they had that and they also had, um, they would wear like Soviet uniforms. Mm. That was the one on Red Square. But in 1985, they also had another parade on Pokhdanaya Gora, mm. um, which is where the Great Patriotic War Museum is now. And that actually was also opened in 1995. Um, it's Pokhdanaya as well. It's also a big... Um, kind of, of of huge importance in um Russian history because it was also where um Russia was victorious over Napoleon for example so it's it has a huge kind of historical meaning to it but that's when they actually had people doing the exact same choreography as those on Red Square but mm. you wearing the new Russian um uniforms and it was also veterans on the Red Square and current military and army cadets on Poklonaya Gora and they had the introduction again of, um, an, of an air parade, for example, over there. Um, so even if it was different, of course, than it is today, I'm not sure if it was muted, particularly mm. not in 1995. Actually, I think it was probably actually a bit more dr dramatic. And I remember when I was reading around this, the New York Times had posted about how, um, you know, it was it was a massive parade of military grandeur. Can't mm. remember the exact quote, but said that you know to kind of it, it reintroduced that um, sort of annual ceremony back into, into the world. It was also the first year as well that they decided to bring it back on a national level. Well, actually, this wasn't even something they did in the Soviet era. Uh, it was in 1995, 
that um, Yeltsin introduced it as an annual holiday. Mm. So before then, yes, locally people celebrated it, but not as it is now on um, Red Square until 1995. Um, before then, it was always on big anniversary dates, like 30 years, 40 years, for example. Not an annual holiday. I think I think my idea of it being muted is probably because I, I was in St. Petersburg in uh, 1995 and I saw the, the local one there, but that probably was not on the same scale and that probably was a bit more personal. Having said that, it's the memory of the siege of Leningrad, which sits deep in Putin's psychology as well, doesn't it? And, and that of many people. And this idea of the blockade and the terrible suffering um, so it's not just a propaganda tool. It is tapping into something very deep rooted in the psyche. Yes. So it, you're absolutely right about St. Petersburg. Also, they did a big military, um, like a naval parade instead in St. Petersburg, because that was more key for where St. Petersburg is positioned. Whereas I also think that the the Red Square, um, it, a lot of what happened in 1995 and a lot of what you see today is mimicking what took place on June the 24th, 1945, but instead of having horses, they're in cars, for, they're in motorcades, right, instead, but they have the same music, they have the same procession, just with different people now, because obviously a lot of those who actually fought in the Great Patriotic War are no longer alive. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And another reason, these are things I pondered in my thesis is why Red Square, right? But it's, you know, um, the garden of the Kremlin, basically, isn't it? It sits around there. And I think having it in those positions shows how important it is politically as well, not just to, to it shows people how important it is to the politicians, to the mm. kind of makeup culture identity of, of society, which is something you've touched upon just then. And it's a curious mixture, isn't it? Because, um, you know, you still have Lenin's mausoleum on Red Square, you still have the sort of buildings which you know you could turn that into a black and white picture of 1945, and it would look not too dissimilar, apart from the larger, you know, missiles on carriers and so on. Um, mm. It's there, there, there's it's a mishmash, isn't it, of symbolism, Soviet symbolism, uh, pre-Soviet symbolism, current symbolism. I mean, it's 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 almost sort of schizophrenic; doesn't quite know what it is. Yeah, and and I mean, I keep obviously reverting to 1995 because I think that was a turning point mm. from uh, how Russia has tried to kind of um, forge the great patriotic war memory in contemporary society. I mean, what people were fighting for back, for back in 1945, a lot of it was the ideology of communism, right? Mm. And now what they're fighting for no, or what they fought for back then no longer exi exists. So it's how do we make that relevant? How do we make that sit with the people in society, especially because a lot of those who lived in the Soviet period, um, obviously I'm not thinking like the younger people now, um, but a lot of those who really did live a lot of their adult life in the Soviet period, probably not really alive anymore. Mm. So it's like, how do you resonate now with a society that might not have felt the same affinity to communism if, if they did? And, you know, there's things like in 1975, um, Lenin's mausoleum was known as like postal number one which when I was trying to figure it out it's almost like it's the the most important I, I don't know how to really explain it but they changed it in 1995 to the um guard of honor the tombstone of the unknown soldier mm. that became postal stamp one and they took it away from Lenin's Muslim so you can see them moving away from um seeing kind of communism as like the central ideology of Russian society and moving more towards maybe this military might Mm -hmm. this victory and um 
also thinking about that and thinking about what they did at that time a lot of it was introducing like religious tropes mm. to something that was not as uh prominent in the mm. soviet period you know having um promoted more scientific rationality over religion um it's something that was brought back to show a clear departure from that time period and and to an extent you know stalin was was very adept at, uh, at using or reintroducing you know religion um mm. to try and and, and rally uh, morale during the second world war so yeah. there's, there's an undercurrent of there but to what extent do you think putin derives support from that ultra conservative traditional i would say almost anti-democratic religious right it, it might be a small minority but it's quite a powerful one isn't it it is you know i sit here and wonder why every day pretty much mm. not not maybe not every day but you know we've seen lately um especially uh, i kind of have accessed a lot of it via twitter to be fair of um patriarch Kirill um announcing that uh anyone who kind of um will die in the war against ukraine is washing away their sins and 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 kind of using this idea of like messianism sacrifice loyalty um as a way to to promote loss of life in the war uh it's almost kind of like a kamikaze spirit isn't it of mm. if your nation and um i i do wonder and i i haven't looked into this myself so it'd be interesting i've I've always been interested in the religious aspect and wanted to go into it in more depth. I've just not had the chance yet. But I do kind of wonder how much people, you know, you can practice a religion by turning up, going to services, but how much do you truly believe it and how much would you sacrifice yourself in the name of that religion? Mm. You know, what is there a relationship or is there, does it kind of, is there, are there limits on that relationship that make people think, well, I'm a good Orthodox um christian but i'm not going to go and sacrifice myself in a war because you know i'm scared or i don't actually believe in the cause i wonder if there are limits to it i certainly and i think the the hundreds of thousands uh fleeing who many of whom would class themselves as patriots some of whom you know even had um the z symbol painted on their cars or carved into their children's hair and they were desperately trying to remove those at the border to get into Georgia. Many of them would class themselves as patriots. Many of them would almost certainly class themselves as orthodox. And yet, as you say, they, you know, when, when, when they're pressed to it, they're not willing to, um, to lay down their lives for those, for those values. It's almost like they're mm -hmm. armchair uh, patriots. Um, and that really raises a question, doesn't it, about how, the religion itself, how much is it sort of symbolic? How much do people think about it, ponder about it? Or is it just, um, you know, some kind of ceremonial? And um, I don't know if you've you, you've been there. I haven't. I've only seen it uh, in pictures. There is a huge church, isn't there, built uh, quite near Moscow, about 100 kilometers from Moscow, a vast militaristic structure, which is almost like something out of Game of Thrones. It's It's unbelievable to see it and it's got the largest uh, square footage of mosaics in Europe mm. in a church, highly militaristic, cannons, <clears throat> weapons. Uh, it's got many, many um, mosaics of war, ones we, we we might sort of, you know, forgive the Second World War and so on, but it's got Afghanistan, it's got Georgia, it's got urban class immoral wars inside that church. Have you researched into that much? I've definitely looked into it. It actually opened when I returned back from field work from there. So I wasn't mm. able to actually get back out, especially because then the pandemic hit. 
Um, but I've seen the videos, I've looked into it and it's, and you know, a lot of the youth army groups like Unarmia, for example, they'll do uh, ceremonies actually around there. Um, they did one um, near, I think it was in June. So near like the official um, end of the, of the Great Patriotic War in terms of when they did the first Turkish Day Parade. And um, it's, it's terrifying actually. Um, it's so strange to be a researcher um, in the sense that you can't, you, you know, you you want to maintain some sort of objectiveness when you're looking into your work. And then there's things that just purely terrify you. And a lot of it is is around this. Um, and yeah, it's, it's I, I mean, I don't even know how they really pull it off, bringing together religion and how bringing together religion and military, for example, in this sense. But it's just, so it's cult-like. I, I don't even actually know how else to explain it apart from the fact that it's cult-like. But I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. It does render you speechless, doesn't it? It is quite unbelievable. Um, If we turn then to the more, uh, I would say, uh, I, I, I I dare not call it intellectual because I I think it's 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 um, it's not very clever stuff. But you have uh, people like Dugan, who is probably um, overhyped in the media. Uh, and his his, his influences are perhaps no more limited, but you do have extremely influential people like Surkov, and they've been able to latch on to this militarism, this nationalism, and um, they certainly have quite a large following, and someone like Surkov, who really was Putin's brain, um, was able to orchestrate, you know, not only the creation of hybrid war, but also the invasion of Crimea, and was the guiding hand behind an awful lot of this extreme national strategy which helped mm-hmm. to boost Putin's ratings uh, again. You know, after Balodna and 2012, when protests began, they managed to turn that around through this hybrid war nationalist uh, agenda. Um, and what's your what's your views on the individuals who are powering, uh, you know, let's say the more intellectual side of this narrative? Um, even though they don't have this, I mean, you're right about Dugan. I think he is overhyped, but I don't think he's less important mm-hmm. in this like mission that they are clearly moving towards because they'll still reach someone. They're still reach, reaching people in Russia. And I think the main problem that, you know, we, I think I see this sometimes in my own research, you know, I'm going to look at a youth army page. I'm going to find things that promote the military. And sometimes I think about, well, what about, the the people who are sitting in the background i mean dugan tries his best to seem like he's more prominent than he is um and as you said it might be overhyped in the media but he still has a following he still has people who are are following his messages and i i don't see them as anyone anywhere um less as important in the conversations that are arising in russia the fascism that is arising and you can only see that as well in the huge kind of interest I guess would be the word, I don't really know which other word it is, um, around his daughter's death. I mean, that no, hardly anyone knew about her before her death. Um, and there was huge discussions about mm-hmm. it. And even though he might not be as prominent in Russian society, he's prominent enough to have gauged, and him and his family to have gauged kind of a following internationally, you know? Um, yeah, I, I don't see them as anywhere less important. Mm. I, I feel I see them as doing things kind of in the background. Mm. And of course, even if they represent a, a minority of society, you know, whether it's 10, 15, 20 percent, which are some figures that 
you know, I've seen banded around through various research. Um, you know, you'll have a similar number who are active on the anti-war side, but the the vast mass of people, an estimated 60-70% are more or less sort of neutral or trying to keep their their head down, but they're not active. So even if there's a 10 or 15% sort of extreme nationalist element, perhaps the fact that they're a small number doesn't matter too much. They are far more active, far more vocal, far more aggressive. I mean, you could even make the comparison with the Bolsheviks in 1917, a very small number of, of people, even within socialist circles, even within social socialist political groupings. And yet it's that aggression aggression that helps them yeah. to set the agenda. Yeah, that's a good example, actually. I didn't even think of it that way. So that's a really good example. But yeah, so, I mean, Lenin, Lenin did not have that kind of grounded support that he needed, but mm. yet he acted on that opportunity of of things going downhill for the czars in order to kind of, you know, make his way back from uh, Finland to St. Mm. Petersburg, wasn't it? And yeah, so that's actually a really good comparison. I was thinking as well that um, it's the main problem lies, and I'm not going to get into the conversations of why people are protesting and aren't protesting and things like that, because it's absolutely way too complicated for a Twitter thread. It's almost um, too late, in- right, to, to do those protests. 2012, 2015, that, that was the time to protest. Now is almost too risky for individuals to do so. That, that's the thing. I, I mean... Uh, Better late than never mm-hmm. is an option, but also, yes, there are laws. I, I don't think we can sit here comfortable on our houses being like, oh, you should mm-hmm. be doing this, you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing that, things like that. Um, but I do also think that, that it's a huge problem in Russia, the fact that people are so um, passive. And it mm-hmm. could be that they're passive, that they're apolitical. Um, some could be genuinely scared, you know, kind of silently protesting the war. Um, some people might just be like, oh, well, it's just a, another day in Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever they live. Um, but I do think that's problematic as well at the same time because that's a huge proportion of society, 60 to 70 percent that you said neutral, but we don't mm. actually know where they really kind of stand on it because they haven't made that known. And um that means then there isn't an kind of an equal figure of those who demonstrate, show anti-war um, protests, and those then that kind of uh shout from the rooftops there mm. kind of for their sentiments isn't it it's it's completely problematic but at the same time uh it's what can we do with that 60 70 percent you know it's too complicated for us to kind of tell people what to do but there's that is also a huge problem that they feel they can't mm. participate mm. or don't want to participate and there's i think there's a big cultural difference i mean we'll get on to education in a minute because i definitely want to cover education i think that's an incredibly important area but mm-hmm. I've been interviewing people about the Euromaidan and there's a very different culture um, that gave rise to Euromaidan. It wasn't just one revolution. It was a whole series. You know, if you go out on the streets, it's not a one off. You have to do it over and over and over until, you know, it, those freedoms are either entrenched or or, or you've, you, you've sort of won, um, you know, some kind of rights that then enshrined in law. It's definitely not a one off process. And also, if you look at those videos, I mean, I didn't. I've never been to Ukraine. I'd love to go. And I wasn't there at Euromaidan. But when you speak to people who are involved, it's it's a, it's a kind of epoch-making event, like the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's yes. messy. It's violent. It's chaotic. Yeah. And it involves hundreds of thousands of people and a vast amount of self-organisation. Um, 
with groups of people agitating, you know, creating small journalistic groups, soup kitchens, mobile ambulance stations to help people. It's just, it's almost like a, a society, a microcosm, all just, you know, and, and that's the impression I get from speaking to a number of people involved. You just don't see that level of self-organization in Russia. I mean, yes, some people were out helping to, you know, take food and clothes to those who were arrested during the initial protests, but it's a very nascent, small-scale version of that, perhaps civil society that is required to tip the balance in a protest. Yes, and I have so many thoughts about this, so hopefully I can get this out in a, a succinct, kind of coherent um, point of view, I guess. But I think this is where we see that... Um, you know, Ukraine's national identity is much stronger than Russia's. And what we hear from Russia is that Ukraine does not have a strong national identity. And actually, there's a lot of Russian people there. And we'll go into the stories of supposed neo-Nazis and stuff uh, committing genocide against Russia. But the big question, the big thing here is that uh, Russia's national identity, <clears throat> particularly in the last 20 years, has changed from being an identity of victory and of um, this idea that they're a besieged fortress, uh, it's intensified to incredible amounts that it's not, um, I want to say, it's definitely got some durability in the fact mm -hmm. that Russia can go, oh, well, we were invaded by the Swedes, we were invaded by Turkey, we were invaded by blah, 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 blah. we were invaded by Nazi Germany always missing out that they also invaded people right um but it's we they always miss that out and um the, the problem we have with russia is that they are now going on the defensive whilst attacking someone else mm -hmm. and they've done this we saw this with georgia we saw this with even further in the 1990s with chechnya for example we see this with um uh with ukraine in 2014 um, and it doesn't hold up that um, notion of being a besieged fortress while attacking so many other nations does not mm. hold up. And so it shows a fragmentation in using this idea of military glory um, during times of adversity and, you know, um, rising up uh, like a phoenix out of ashes. It doesn't quite work when you're the country going on the offensive. Mm. Um, it doesn't hold up. Uh, the one thing that Ukraine has and that Ukraine has a lot of things here is that it has been the I'm trying to think what the word is it has been it's the underdog mm. like it has been the underdog in this situation but it's been the underdog repeatedly by Russia Russia hasn't been the underdog repeatedly by yeah. Ukraine for this time and so it's it's much easier for much not much easier but you can see that in the way that Ukraine has forged this really strong national identity that has trumped Russia's ability to even pull together something that's, as you said, organized, something that um, is not just organized on like a, a bureaucratic level, but there is an even deeper sense of like purpose mm. in what like in what Ukraine is doing compared to what Russians are doing. You see now Russians going to the front being like, I don't really understand what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing. Who are, who are these Nazis that we're talking about, for example? Mm. It's like imperial victimhood. And um, uh, it was, um, I think it was David Sater I was talking to, he made the point that that same ideology was was embedded deep in Nazism as well. Uh, again, I don't want to bandy the word Nazis around because that's extremely inflammatory, but yeah. that same 
you know, we are the victims while going on the attack. That is absolutely, you know, reminiscent of of the propaganda um, technique that the, the the Nazis used. But if any nation or any two nations can claim to be the continual victims of invasion, it's Poland and Ukraine itself. Yeah. We've been carved up and invaded, you know, more times uh, than we've probably had hot dinners. You know, it's it's throughout history. Yes. No. Yeah. And I, I think that's where um, like Russia has lost its credibility completely. And I think that's what kind of really has threatened its ability to pull together, um, especially because this is a, a time where Putin's trying to bring about action and not reaction. You know, if this was a genuine um, attack on Russian soil, then you can bandy people together a lot better when there's it's a reaction to something. Putin's doing the action he's yeah it's not got the same kind of glue in factor mm. it, it's Hopefully a mechanic isn't it to instill terror which uh which is actually reminiscent of probably quite a fragile regime when we know Putin is not a he's not an autocrat in the sense of being all powerful all controlling he's actually the head of a fairly fragile system of uh greedy elites who are constantly at war with each other you know yeah. struggling internally for their own power let's turn to education and i definitely want to give that a good shot there because i know that's part of your your research and i recall back talking to ian garner who is an expert on propaganda in the afghan war and he said a really interesting thing which uh, has passed a lot of people by but Russian education has been reformed over the last couple of years, hasn't it, to make this nationalist ideology at the heart of teaching. So there's a canon of literature which is taught, and there are other works which would perhaps question that, that have been dropped from the syllabus that people would have perhaps read in the 90s. Um, But they're also now manipulating history. They're dropping mentions of Ukraine, Ukrainian history. Kievan Rus is the um, progenitor of Russian culture rather than, uh, you know, they're, they're flipping it round. So Russia is, is you know, the uh, the motherland where where we we know that uh, actually it was Kievan uh, state that existed before um, really is the progenitor of uh, what you could call the Russian identity. So can you talk a bit about education and how the manipulation or brainwashing is now starting through the school curriculum? Yes, I don't really know where to start. You did a good little introduction there on that. But yeah, um, I mean, for me, I first of all focused on it in the 1990s. And that's when we saw, particularly after the, during um, Gorbachev's period of, of democratization. So with reforms like Glasnost, for example, which kind of meant lifting a veil on the secrecy of, of Soviet life and kind of lifting up senses as well in everyday life. Um, this, you know, happened in the media, for example. So um, there was the, kind of the birth of new media um, outlets, which were then kind of questioning things like the um, actual victory of the Great Patriotic War, given how many people had died. So at this point as well, archives were opening. People were starting to see how many people had had died in the war, the actual cost in monetary terms of war. People were asking, well, were we really victorious? And this also translated then into education. Um, so there were a lot of publishers that actually grew in the time of the 1990s, you know, competing with each other within a, a new um, market system. Um, and uh, there was there was some breakout kind of research during that time, um, which questioned a lot of the questions were around um, about Stalin's strategy, 
was one of which um, asking whether he had planned actually a preemptive attack on Nazi Germany. That was one of them. Others questioning um, why he acted so late. And that's something that actually Putin's used in one of his justifications for attacking Ukraine. Um, and also then there were, there were questions more generally about like the state of Stalinism, for example, and collectivization, genocide against um, Ukrainian people during that time because of collectivization, Holodomor, for example. And um, it was during that time that because of these questions came up and about that certain communities in, um, in Russian society, the new Russian society, um, became marginalized. And one of these groups was actually the veterans. Um, it was in the early 1990s that they they lost that prestige that they previously had in the Soviet era, um, where they were kind of like the grandfathers of the nation. And it was in 1995 that they started to question, well, we, we need to bring about a patriotic military education system to raise the patriotic spirit of Russia's youth. Um, they proposed doing things like um, holding kind of celebrations for the for the veterans, not for the teachers, for the for the veterans. They proposed um, holding like tea parties for them, for example. They proposed bringing veterans into school so that they could have that exchange. They said there was nothing more important than having that generational crossover. Um, and it also translated then into some of the books that the students were using. And in the 1990s, it was quite a difficult time period because there were books that the government kind of gave a nod to and said, yes, these are fine. But there was a lot of autonomy. People were allowed to use whichever books they wanted. In addition, because of the economic chaos of that time, a lot of schools were reverting back to the Soviet textbooks because they didn't have enough money to buy these new textbooks. So there really was, as we've already kind of mentioned with the memory landscape, a mismatch of uh, ideologies taking place in the classroom. You still had some of the Soviet victory um, ideology in textbooks. You also then had that um, new questions over, well, what was the, the Soviet victory? Was, was that really the case? Was it a Soviet victory? And then you had this new introduction of things like um, uh, the introduction of speaking about Allied victory in the Great Patriotic War rather than just Soviet victory. You had um, greater internationalization of school textbooks. Um, in general, these were the kind of things that the um, Ministry of Education wanted to introduce. A lot of it, though, was confined by the fact that there was, uh, there was little to no money. So um, you would see, actually, in the textbooks that I kind of reviewed, I reviewed, um, I think it was 22 in the end, textbooks. Um, long process, a long process. A lot of it actually was Kievan Rus. I won't um, ask how so, tedious that was. That, that doesn't sound... Well, do you know, I, I was not. like, I think at the end, I was like, I'm learning. And that's where I was like, this mm. is so problematic because I was reading this and I was thinking, well, if I'm looking at this and I'm like, I'm learning, then I would think of like a student kind of reading this as well. And I had to really take a step back and start thinking about some of the main themes I was seeing rather than mm. the actual storylines themselves because I was thinking, ah, yes, this person did this. And like, some of these people didn't even really exist. They're like myths, right? And uh, they're, they're like based on a person that did exist, but a more romanticized version. Um, but it was it was interesting because it was different to what you would see now in Russian textbooks. Like you said, um, one of the major textbook uh, publishers, Provoshenia, which is called Enlightenment, they, um, on the 24th of February, were told they need to mute uh, any 
kind of speech or discussions about Ukraine, right? They had to kind of start moving them away from uh, even appearing in these textbooks, but they did appear in the, the ones in the early 1990s and, and mid 1990s even. Um, but there was still kind of, there was still a militaristic Russia is great element in the 1990s, but it's it's moved on so much more now. I see the 1990s as kind of a foundation for where Russia is today. It's not that Putin has done anything radical and anything different. He's built on what kind of mm. Yeltsin set out. That's, I think one thing I say in my thesis is that uh, Yeltsin built the house that Putin's now decorating. Mm. Right. That's one of my radical innovator, isn't he? He's he's not really an ideas man. So the idea of him taking and borrowing what was already there feels, you know, quite accurate, really. Yeah, but he's taken it to like a different level. Mm. I wouldn't say it was uh, revolutionary. I'd say it's bizarre, but it's mm. it's like a frenzy that people have. Not all, not all people, mm. but many people have latched onto because it has a, um, it has a. I'm trying to think what the word is. It's it's like a, a show. Mm. It's like a performance. It's performing. And what you see in education now in Russia is it's not just reading the textbooks and doing the exams and doing the tests. It's about students performing. They perform in um, reenactments. They like they do um, Borodino, for example. They reenact for um, the Battle of Borodino. They reenact Stalingrad. Mm. They reenact. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones now. But they reenact, but they re they they do reenact them. They wear the clothes of the time period. They have to mm. mentally. Uh, put themselves in the positions of the people at the time they are performing uh, also as and particularly during since the start of the war they're performing in like a rear worker position and it's something that I've been pondering with and working on is this idea that the youth are acting as workers of the rear and in the great patriotic war the workers of the rear were really important they were really important people because they were the people who made sure that there was ammunition. They were the people who made sure there was food. And that's what these youth, this youth is doing. They're doing things like holding concerts for the refugees from areas like Luhansk and Donetsk mm. um, to raise their morale and spirit. They're sending letters to soldiers on the front. They're sending care packages to soldiers on the front. They're also acting as um, perpetuators of the great patriotic war victory. They're also acting as um, preservers of the historical truth, you know, Russia's version of the Great Patriotic War. They've been put into, they've like been co-opted into these performative roles. And I think that takes the, the youth education of today in Russia way beyond any normal education system where they're kind of confined within the books, within the classroom. They're taking it into like... Mm. Um, it's like a psychological aspect of it. Well, it, they're taking it way beyond the classroom. Because that's Again, interesting. Because of course there was the pioneers, which was the Soviet equivalent of the of the sort of scouting movement. Yeah. It was well. I mean, the scouts had militaristic roots, imperial roots. There's no getting away from that. Uh, in that respect, it's not too dissimilar. But the the pioneers was a little bit more militaristic, wasn't it? But it's you know. I think a lot of people from speaking to them, a lot of people would have gone into the pioneers and, and those kind of things and, and actually not necessarily believing the ideology. So it's, it's a bit of sort of make-believe it's costume. It's just society. It's just people doing stuff together. 
um, you know, and the uniform is just a way to to get them involved. What you're describing is something far deeper, almost more pernicious. Um, and again, you know, at the risk of uh, of making a historic analogy, you know, the the Hitler Youth also had that same extreme uh, indoctrination, but that practice of going out you know, and, and, and actually doing stuff, active stuff uh, in the world to activate that, uh, uh, you know, that um, being part of that group ideology. Is it going too yeah. far to compare it to that? Um, I think, like, there's definitely, I think I'll work out, right, I'll, I'll get to that point. Mm. But I think that the, you've mentioned something that was really interesting. I think that does separate it and that will help me then get to, to the equivalency of like the Hitler youth. Mm. But the pioneers, for example, they weren't called like a young army, mm. right? So they were acting under the guise of not being a young army whilst being like drip fed, drip, drip fed, mm -hmm. oh, I can't say it, drip fed ideas of militarism, um, devote yourself to the motherland, love the motherland, things like that. Whereas what children are doing in Russia now, those who are part of Unamia um, are basically, they're in a youth army. Like Unamia mm. means youth army and they are acting as if they are in an army. They will have uniforms, for example. They, as I, they learn how to shoot guns. Um, I, what, I saw something a couple of months ago where they were learning to use knives. Mm. um they, they are actually acting like actual mini a mini army and the thing with Hitler's youth is that it was almost like that in between it wasn't a I'm Hitler's army even though they were they were I would say even more militarized than the pioneers mm. but there was still a similar kind of method in the way that they were being indoctrinated through doing things that act like uh that spurred them on to perform in a particular role mm. one that showed even if they didn't believe it in their not even if they didn't believe it consciously in their souls that they were doing the right thing they were part of something and it could be that they were part of something that was fun to perform rather than they really knew the implications of it which is what i suspect more mm. with a lot of the younger groups unami is a bit different because the students are in teenage years so there's more of an awareness of what's going on and what's mm. taking place but yeah so i would say that the um, hitler youth kind of sat in the middle of having mili mi militaristic ideas fed to them same sort of method but they weren't a i'm an army i'm mm. a youth army and we know of course how that hitler youth indoctrination ended you know as berlin was falling um, they threw ever younger children into the front lines. Um, and there came a point where those distinctions just evaporated and, you know, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds being thrown at the front line as cannon fodder. The real worry I certainly have is at the moment they're throwing ethnic minorities and older people, unfit, some of them, you know, under normal circumstances should be excluded from the conscription draft. But of course, we know how that works. It's entirely indiscriminate. Um, the worry here would be that if you have a militaristic indoctrinated youth, when they run out of those other classes of volunteers, if they're still fighting the war and through a sort of grinding cold winter where they don't have the right equipment, they don't have the right clothing, Will they start throwing this generation uh, at the cannons as well? 
No, I have two worries. One of them is the one that you've mentioned, and I'll talk about that. And then I've got another one that I'll kind of add in. I'll throw into the discussion and see what you think. The first, the first worry you've said is, I don't know if it's possible. I don't think they won't try, right? Um, but I've already seen a lot of pushback on the Unamia press page about the um, rumours that uh, Unamia members are being pushed into the war. And that was very early on um, in, the, in Russia's invasion. So I do wonder whether that would be an act. If it was going to happen, I do think it would be very low level. People wouldn't really know about it. The second question we have to ask about that same sort of scenario is what would the mothers do? And the only reason I ask what would the mothers do, I also hope the fathers would do it as well. But the only reason I ask what the mothers would do is because of the soldiers of mothers, the mothers of soldiers, sorry, organization, um, which uh, was liquidated actually early on in the war itself. Of course, so you don't need the official organization to act collectively in that same manner and for that same mm. cause. And so I would hope in that situation that that uh, organization mm -hmm. based on their parenthood, again, doesn't have to just be mothers, can be fathers as well. And we've seen um, women in Dagestan fight. being yes. very vocal and actually protesting. So not in mainland Russia, but in the peripheries, they have started to to do that. Yeah. yeah so that's that's kind of that's a scenario I would hope for in that situation. I obviously hope it didn't get to that, but I would hope for that scenario if if that was to happen. Um, and then the other kind of thing I would mention, though, however, is the fact that some a lot of young people have died in the war and a lot of parents haven't spoken out. Obviously, one of the reasons is that it's illegal to speak out against the war, terror against it. But also this idea that people want to believe their kids are dying for the right reasons, like even if they don't believe it in their heart and their soul. There's that, you know, well, I want to feel like my son or my daughter died for something good. Um, and that's something I've also noticed. Um, and those are people who are, you know, 19, 20 years old, their parents have been in that way. But I don't know what I, I think it's too early to talk about the scenario and hopefully we don't have to talk about that scenario. Um, but if it is, I wonder whether it would kind of spur a more, a, a different grassroots um, kind of movement again, like we saw with um, in Dagestan with those women. The kind of second scenario I kind of wanted to bring to the discussion, if I may, is about what happens to the children after the war. Um, and I'm talking about Russian children here. And of course, um, this, you know, I'll, I'll have to say it here because I know it's a big concern, but there are lots of Ukrainian children who have died in this war. And so this question isn't going to try and diminish, diminish the question about Ukrainian children dying in war. I wonder about the guilt, potential guilt that youth in Russia might feel from being part of these initiatives when they're older. We don't know whether they are consciously really engaging with these questions and with the ideas that they're being given or whether they're performing as part of a, you have to do this in school, you have to hold up and stand in a V shape. Do they believe in these ideas or do they not? And what happens to them when they're growing up, when they're older mm. and they have to face these questions of, well, you participated in some way. And that's and just, that, yeah. That almost is like the the, the victor or or even the victims of determining the, the 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 way that history is told. And I think um, the level of guilt those children will experience cannot be determined until we know what kind of regime emerges. Because if that regime mm. manipulates history in the way the current one does, yeah. then they simply won't have the information 
you know, they might have some kind of intangible guilt, but they won't have a fully articulated version of it. And if it's still a, a, a militarized education system, any guilt they might feel will be crowded out with with other propagandistic nonsense potentially. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that's one of those are sort of the questions I've I've thought about this, and those are the sorts of questions I've kind of gone back to. Well, who will who will be next? Will they be the same? Will they promote this? Um, and part of me thinks, and this might be pessimistic, but based on the past in Russia, I'm going to live in the past as well. Based on the past in Russia, there's a there's a tradition of a militarized education system, and I don't see it. And you know the the I, I don't see it unraveling anytime mm. soon. That might be very pessimistic. Mm. Um, but I think we do need to have those questions in mind of what happens next. Um, not in a way where we need to predict. You know, we don't need to say, well, this is definitely going to happen. We don't know that. But having those questions in our mind of, well, what might we do if it is a, a government, the person who's next is, uh, is not Putin mm. 2.0. What do we do then? What happens to those people who have unconsciously being co-opted in the war and i think um you know we focused on putin and his elite but he's just part of a a group or probably one of the only groups in russia that has any kind of class consciousness and that is the security services the sylvia key they're the only yeah. group that is allowed to have a almost call it a civic identity um that isn't repressed in some way and you brought up this idea of the veterans feeling marginalized. It's interesting, isn't it? That the same time that was happening in the 90s, another group also felt they were losing control and they were marginalized. And that was the FSB or the ex-KGB. Mm -hmm. um, is there some connection then with, you know, the retaking of the reins of power, the merging yeah. of, you know, mafia economic power with the security services, and then combining that with veterans nationalism and religion into this sort of potent mix that is such an interesting question um, so i spoke my to yuri feshinsky would... last week and he's he's put these ideas in my head so uh, i won't claim it as originally mine <laughs> no it's just something that i've it's it's been in my awareness but mm. not something i've actually put much of my thought into but I wonder if it's based on the age-old story that you kind of need the military on your side in some way. You need the security on your side, the security mm. services. And so they kind of all mesh together because I think if it was purely military, um, you if it was a purely military ideology mm. without the messianism, for example, without the idea of like security, it might not work as mm. prominently as it is doing in Russian society. Mm. I think it needs like the cult-like ideas, the ideas of that are deeper than... I'm going to use a weapon and do this. It's more about protection, for example, defense yeah. against something. Exactly. So, yeah. If you look at Kirill, you know, he was a KGB officer, which is well known. You look at Shaigu, he's not actually from the army. He's from that administrative uh, class uh, of apparatchiks. So mm -hmm. what you've got isn't a genuine militaristic ruling elite. You've got a bunch of spies, you know, playing at soldiers potentially and perhaps some of the results you're seeing in ukraine are, are are actually showing those sort of fault lines showing the actual incompetence you know they're, they're very good at hybrid war and they're very good at the the spying game and the administrative wars and economic wars 
when it comes to the practical war, they, they, they've been shown to be fairly hopeless. Yeah, there's, they haven't got the um, stamina. Mm. They haven't got this, like the security services don't have the same sort of stamina because they operate on a different level, like you've mentioned. But I also think it's that, um, and I can't even remember the quote exactly, but it's the idea that war is the spoils of an army, I think is the quote. Like um, a lot for a lot of the Russian imperial um, leaders, for example, they would love military grand orders, throwing parades, making the military look great. But as soon as they went into war, it all went to pot. It, it didn't work out. It ruined the military prestige. It mi- ruined what they all built up. And I think this mm. is the same thing for Putin. What Putin has been building up for decades um, is falling apart because of the war, because he isn't the general, right? Uh, Shogu isn't the general. Like these people don't, they, they haven't got that background. And those who do have the background are those who were also the same people in Chechnya, for example, in the 1990s. Not quite the uh, CV, I guess, yeah. that you'd want um, for, for, for carrying out a war that requires a lot more stamina than mm. um, security um, strategy. Mm. And of course, the losses were a fraction, an absolute fraction of the current losses. So again, you know, for all its moral, uh, uh, let's say, sort of not even ambiguity for the, for the, you know, horrific moral aspect of the Chechen war, it was executed militarily far more effectively with far less, you know, lower loss of equipment and men than the, than the current campaign. Yeah, it's a bit of a mix. Um, Well, only because, I mean, um, I did a lot on media discourses around Chechnya and a lot Mm. of it was also about, you know, the, and we see it reflected in today. A lot of what people are talking about in Russia's war with Ukraine today, they're reflecting on what happened in Chechnya, like the low training of combat troops, the fact that there was high corruption Mm. because people were like so scared, so anxiety induced, there was lots of drugs, lots of alcohol being Mm. used as well because people didn't really know what they're doing, they weren't properly trained. And so we've had like those parallels today between what happens now and what happens then. I think the, the, the question that we might mostly be asking ourselves, rather than the losses, is what they've lost their lives for. Mm. It's like Chechnya, it's futile. It's uh, a war that is gaining something for a very small group of people in Russia today, i.e. Putin. But what does it mean for other people in society? Does it really, is there really this benefit that Putin is talking about? Do people care about it in the same way as Putin? Do people care about that more than their sons, their daughters who are losing their lives in this war? And I think that's the big question is not necessarily how many lives, because even one life being lost in the war, if it's not a war that's got any sort of like uh, importance to someone, it's, it's still big. I hope that makes sense. I think that it means. does. And that leads probably, I know we're, we're coming to the end. I mean, it leads into my last question, really, which was, comes back to kind of unite the theme you brought up earlier, which is guilt. And this is a big if, and I know, you know historians don't like these sort of what-if scenarios, but I think it's fairly certain that Russia will lose the war. And if we ignore the non-conventional weapons, perhaps assume those don't get used, let's assume, you know, Ukraine is victorious. Somehow there is a period of chaos within Russia. If there is a period of reassessment, if the naked facts of the war are presented to the Russian public at some point. What is that going to do to people who have lost so much 
um, in terms of you know relatives, sons, fathers, but also their economic um, position as well, their wealth, um, their opportunities. I think that really differentiates from the 90s. However bad things were in the 90s, people at least could say, well, we have hope they're going to get better. I think mm-hmm. if Russia loses this war, you're going to have a terrible uh, burden of guilt, loss, and the sense of lost opportunity. I think, and I, I think I have more of an optimistic viewpoint on the 1990s than um, some of my other colleagues. But I think the one reason that a lot of people were able to kind of reconcile the chaos of the 1990s now is because it was there was an aim. There was an aim to democratize, for example. There was an aim to bring a brighter future to Russia. Whereas a lot of people will say, well, what was the purpose of all of this, really? How much did that all mean to us? It's just something I raised just before. But the one thing that, uh, this is kind of where I sit on that pessimistic part of you then, where I wonder who comes next, because I think it depends on how long, how long this takes to happen, I guess, from the sense of when will people have their eyes opened to the naked truth. If it happens sooner, then I think people will be absolutely, as you said, distraught. It will it will ruin Russian society even more than it already is now. And I think that will open the gates for someone to come in who's, again, Putin 2.0, right? Because that, po- that person then will kind of play a blame game, blame someone else for the misfortunes that they felt, raise some of those ideas again. Then um, this is only what I've seen from history. But if there's a big period of time between that, so like in the Soviet Union's case, where it was 1940s to the um, late 1980s, early 1990s, there could be a moment of um, distance between the loss of what people occur now to when they would find out. Mm. I'm not saying that would make it any less painful, um, that realisation. I think that realisation would definitely be painful whether it's now or whether it's in 40 years but I think it would be that there's a lot more people are still grieving now whereas they might have had time to Mm. reconcile it would be opening old wounds rather than building on ones that are still really open like a Um, whole new generation could be born who weren't directly involved and therefore can perhaps look at it a bit more objectively yes yeah I think that's where I kind of stand in it but again it's it's that answer of only time will tell Mm. Only time will tell. That that's probably a good place to end it on, and it's been an incredibly thought-provoking uh, conversation. Um, I really appreciate you spending an evening to talk about these, uh, well, sort of terrifying and and and, and quite tragic issues. Alison, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me.